Hi, my name is Egal Bronner, and together with Professors Rachana Majumdar, uh, Ulrike Stark, and Elena Bashir, we run this year's uh, South Asia Seminar uh, series, of which is, this is the inaugurating event. So I want to welcome all, you all for the first meeting of the South Asia Seminar. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Hassan Siddiqui, uh, who took over Kasha's role as the student coordinator of the seminar. Kasha is now uh, teaching at Madison. And uh, to, to thank all the uh, COSAS people who, who help us, uh, 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 Brian Ashby, Michael Burt, and of course, Dr. Tiny Betty. Um, we, you should just book this time slot in your calendar for the entire year, this time slot between uh, 4.30 and, and 6 on Thursdays, because we have a, an amazing uh, lineup of speakers, both uh, invited guests, our own students presenting their work, and uh, invited guests who are returning graduates of this university, a lot of them in the lineup for this year, such as uh, our next week's speaker, uh, Whitney Cox from uh, SOAS in London. Uh, what we're doing today is continuing uh, with two traditions that we started with in, in the last two years. The tradition of starting the series with some special events, some special talk. If you remember our special guest for last year's talk was uh, uh, Richard Eaton. Uh, and also uh, Another tradition that we, uh, we are trying to incorporate here or to keep is having our own professors, our own faculty from COSAS also participate in the series in addition to all the wonderful invited guests. And you remember that William started that a couple of years ago by giving, I think, the first talk in the series, right? So, uh, uh, so our special speaker today, very special speaker today, is Dikas Chakravarti the Lawrence A. Kimpton Distinguished Service Professor of History and South Asian Languages and Civilizations. And, you know, when they say usually that the, the following speaker needs no introduction is a, is a moment to launch into a long introduction. I, I won't do that. I'll spare you off the long list of awards and honorary degrees, uh, last of which, Chris Pish. <laughs> The last of which I believe, I believe was at the University of London, a degree, uh, a, PhD, a doctorate degree in, in literature just a, a month ago or this month. And this distinguished institutes where Dipesh has recently given talks so as to allow time for him to talk today. I'll spare you of this and I'll spare you of his uh, long list of uh, publications. Uh, what, I, what I will say though, is that, in my mind at least, uh, Dipesh in many ways embodies the, 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 this Chicago ideal of big questions in intellectual history. Questions like, what is the history of objectivity in history? What is the future of history as a, as a discipline in the face of the discussion of on global warming or in the face of uh, 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 popular culture, 
how to think of the metropolis as a province and, and vice versa. Just last year, uh, uh, William Mazzarella and Lila Gandhi and others have organized this uh, wonderful conference here uh, to commemorate the 10th year from the publication of Provincializing Europe, uh, Deepesh's uh, uh, groundbreaking uh, book. But in addition to these kind of big, grand questions that, that often have this long durée aspect built into them, there's an aspect of Deepesh's work that is extremely accessible. And, and those of us who, who try not always successfully to read theory and discussions about big questions know how rare and important a quality this is. So extremely accessible, deals with the familiar and the familial. And, and, and is engaging and invigorating through his engagement with the tangible, the political, the here and now. There's always a, a, a concern in his talks of, of how to make the world that we live in and the reality that we know uh, better. And that, I think, is something that his students in India and in Australia and here in Chicago have, have uh, always uh, experienced. And, and in fact, the, the title of today's talk promises to me, at least, the kind of combination between the majestic and the rejuvenating, because it is the empire and the birth of historical research in India. So uh, without further ado, I want to thank, I want to ask you to join me in thanking Deepesh for agreeing to give this inaugural talk. Thanks, Igal, from, for that uh, very generous introduction. Um, I'm mindful of the time. I'll have to cut a long story, if not a talk, short. Um, fundamentally, and I'll be talking a lot about this man, which is why I've got his picture up there. Um, what I'm trying to do in this, in this paper um, and um, in the series of questions I'm trying to raise here is really to do a history of the activity of research itself. Um, uh, and, and because I'm doing it through history, so I ask, what is historical research? When did people think they were doing research in history as opposed to writing history? Um, what does the word research mean? And of course, as you know, that. Um, I mean, now, of course, the students, PhD students, take it for granted that they'll come into a PhD program and do a PhD. But even the PhD degree has a very interesting history, which a lot of which is told in that wonderful book on research universities by William Clark, uh, who focuses mainly on Germany and shows how between, um, between the 15th and the 18th century, there was a lot of debate about whether, uh, whether there could actually be a degree called Doctor of Philosophy. Um, and whether um, philosophers could call themselves doctors. And uh, the Dean of Arts at the University of Leipzig in 1471 sent an edict around clarifying that a master's degree and the doctor's degree were the same degree. Um, in, the, in the late uh, 16th century, a German uh, person uh, created, a, in the form of a doggerel, a syllogism. Which, event, which sort of said the master's degree is the highest degree that one can get, 
PhD is, a, is an even higher degree. Ergo, there cannot be a PhD degree. <laughs> and uh, the PhD degree was really, it became popular after the French Revolution. Um, mainly the Germans introduced it, came to America in the 1860s. Yale was one of the earliest universities to introduce a PhD degree. In India, the Indian University didn't give PhDs until the 1930s. Um, so, but the word research in, in, in history writing circles in India, and I'm, I mean history writing, I don't mean archaeology, I don't mean numismatics, I mean history writing circles, um, uh, became um, very popular um, from the 1910s on, onwards. You can see Indian languages using Indian words, translating the word research. Uh, and societies are set up. 1910, you have the, uh, in Rajshahi in Bengal, the establishment of Varendra Research or Anusandhan Samiti, Research Society. You have in Pune the setting up of the Bharati Vihas Samsodak Mandal, the Association of Indian Researchers in Indian History. Um, you have in 1911 the setting up of the Assam Research Society. 1914, you have Bihar and Orissa Research Society. 1936, you have Karnataka Research Society. So it's really in the early 20th century that the word research becomes popular, even though people were you know, hunting down sources and writing popular histories from the 1880s on. So the question am I asking really uh, is a kind of, is a kind of, I'm trying to punch a little bit of Foucault in the word birth, as you can see, uh, which is to say that there was no one point of origin. Uh, many people were trying to do research without knowing what research was. Um, I'll be talking about uh, some of them. Um, but the questions that are of immediate are also kind of Geertzian in spirit somewhat, because I ask, uh, how would one write the history of the activity called historical research? What kind of activity would be designated research and by whom? Who would make such activity meaningful, socially meaningful to those engaged in it? Particularly in a situation where people are doing research, but the universities are not giving out PhD degrees. And in what way? would the meaning of doing research in history be uh, different from the act of writing history without thinking you are researching it as well? Right? So what is the difference between actually researching history and just writing history? Um, <clears throat> and how would those who, who thought they were actually initiating research in Indian history, how would they distinguish themselves as doing something new and thus from those they perceived as not doing research in history. I mean, those were the early questions that people were asking themselves. What would give research its prestige and thus constitute it as some kind of a distinction in a Borjovian sense? There is a kind of cultural capital. And what makes these questions interesting in the Indian context, as I said, was that these questions were, happened, were being asked outside of the university. Because the universities really didn't do research in history until didn't give research degrees until the 1930s. So one archive that I think actually helps answer this question are the 1,300 or so letters that um, exist of all the letters that pass between Jadunath Sarkar and, and G.S. Sardisai, the Maratha historian, who wrote to each other throughout their life from about 1904, uh, the first letters to 1958, that when Jadnath Sarkar died. Um, and these letters are in the, in the National Library in Calcutta. 
And um, uh, I won't go into the details of the biography of Jadunath Sarkar. Most of you would know what he did, the doyen of Indian history, the, his volumes on Mughal Shivaji, volumes on uh, the decline of the Mughal Empire, volumes on Aurangzeb, would be known to most people. Sardesai was a self-taught historian of the Maratha people, wrote a nine-volume history in Marathi of the Maratha people, and a three-volume history in English, uh, a new history of the Marathas. And, uh, and <coughs> what's interesting is, of course, that even in the, uh, when, the when some of these correspondence, some of these letters were actually edited and published in a volume in 1957 uh, or 58 that came out in honor of Jadunath Sarkar just before he died. And Jadunath Sarkar actually wrote a foreword to the volume. And in that foreword, he summed up his own life as that of a researcher um, and emphasized the very idea, actually, even in the foreword, he says what was important for him is that it was genuine research. And genuine research is part of the polemics about what is research. If nobody knows what is research, and there's no institution saying this is research, researchers are actually fighting among themselves, uh, trying to establish who is the real researcher. And Sarkar wrote in that foreword, when I first set my hand to the plow in 1891, research, except in San Sanskrit, meant only the pirating or translation of modern English or French books. I think guess half it still goes on. But today, he says, today no genuine worker on Indian history is content unless he has mastered the languages of the original, and he emphasizes it, authorities, and can utilize the original records, dispatches, state papers, which are the primary responsible, primary responsible sources. So what was research then? Research was, at least in the Sarkar uh, Sardesai correspondence, and you know, one of the interesting things about these letters is they were extremely aware that these letters were one of the fundamental questions they were asking themselves, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, is are we doing research? Are we doing better research than what others are doing? And why is our research distinctive? And towards the end of their lives, actually, there's a letter that Sajisai writes saying, we should save this correspondence for future scholars to see what research was like in Indian history. So there's kind of self-consciousness that they're doing research. So what was research in history? <clears throat> for them, research was first of all an attempt to reconstruct the past by getting as close to eyewitness accounts as possible. Sarkar actually, <clears throat> in a conference in 18, 11, um, 1915, he underlined the importance of original primary sources by saying, <clears throat> consider how in writing histories of the Pathan period, we depend blindly on, on Ferishta or Al-Badawani or on Kafi Khan for the histories of 17th century Mughal emperors, but all three of them were born long after the events and were mere collectors of contemporary descriptions. In other words, they were not contemporary eyewitness, uh, uh, eyewitnesses of what was going on. Second task was to verify references, and it's, it's fascinating actually how much, what influence juridical thought played in, in Sarkar's thinking. Actually, one of the key texts of this period was uh, published by a man called H.P. George, who was a missionary, but who also taught in Oxford for a while on evidence, on historical evidence, which was published around 1908-9. He often makes references to it. And here also he, he compares uh, the original evidence to you know, what in India we call the FIR, made at a police station. He said the original evidence is like the first information report made at a police station. 
And just as there would be no case without the first information report, there's no history without the FIR that you have to find out. And collecting and, and, collecting and verifying evidence, however, was merely hard work. He said, this is the hard work you have to do, but this is what you have to do to but avoid personal mistakes by looking. So you have the hard work of doing the, getting at the original uh, documents. Then you have to avoid personal mistakes by looking at a character in the round. So he introduced the idea that you need to use sources from multiple perspectives that give you multiple perspectives. So to work on Shivaji, you need the Portuguese sources. You know, you need the Maratha sources. You need the Persian sources. And the biggest uh, item in his reformist agenda was the question of truth. The search for original and contemporary sources ultimately was in aid of what he said, realizing the whole and undistorted truth about the past. History must stand, as he put it, on the solid rock of truth. And truth was a fundamental category in their thinking. And I'll come back to what this truth is. But what I want to, what I want to emphasize, though, is that each of these terms in Sarkar's uh, explanation of what research is, each of these terms, looking for the original document, looking for the truth, each of these terms marked a break with what we might call the Indian tradition of writing history under the Mughals and before. Because India did not have any identifiable archives that survived into the British times, a mature Sarkar would spend much time later explaining and pondering why this was so, like a ready-made archives. The insistence on finding and using original and contemporary sources made for an entirely new activity that, as I've described elsewhere, produced much rivalry amongst first generation of historians over the question of who got to the particular sources first. And I've written somewhere else about the tremendous rivalry between historians about uh, this new fetish of the source. I cannot imagine historians in pre-British India, and I'm very glad that Muzaffar is here to contradict me and, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I cannot imagine historians in pre-British India seeking credit or feeling jealous of each other for being the first to spot an original document. Um, indeed, as Sarkar himself says, many of the old historical accounts themselves repeated other accounts already available to them. But more importantly, by this call for hard work and abandoning laziness, these are his terms, this is the other interesting feature, thing about what was research as it was being defined, that very emphasis on hard work, the emphasis on you must not be, the researcher must not be lazy, this is constantly... And one of the things that go on about researchers who are not genuine is that they're lazy. And, I, and, and it, it, it makes you realize that research, by definition, was an activity of the young for these people, which most historians of the older times were not. I mean, you go back to older times, people actually waited to become old in order to write history. Whereas research is something that cannot be done by old people. Um, indeed, one of the most remarkable aspects of the Sarkar Sardesai correspondence, for instance, is a particular strand of their lament over old age that had not so much to do with the disabilities of old age as such. For Sarkar was as such in, you know, in fine health. As with the fact that the general decline in health, that the, as with the fact that aging actually stomped them from stomping around the countryside looking for original historical sources. The Sarkar writes to Sardesai, in 1940, you probably realize that in view of our advanced age, this is likely to be the last historical excursion we'll undertake together. Or nearly a year later in 41, we are both of us turned of 70, and you had recently had a severe attack. 
and we have therefore sadly to discontinue our old pleasant practice of roving from place to place. No more for us Kanagiri and Tanjore and other delusive attractions. Sardesai reciprocates the sentiments in some of his letters. He writes in 1943, the monotony of my existence in Kamshet, which is where he lived outside of Pune, made him remember, he said, wistfully their research trips in 1925, when we stayed together at Servants of India Society. And he writes, I'm languishing here in my loneliness and yearn from some stimulation by way of research. He wrote with even more pathos in 1950. And I, I don't think this particular way of experiencing old age would have been available to historians of the Mughal or late Mughal Indian. Um, for while histories in the Mughal or in the late <coughs> Mughal period were written, often for a variety of reasons, some instrumental, some theological, the work was seldom undertaken as idealistic youthful activity. And the idealism has to do with this devotion to truth that I'll come to, this idea that there is a completely non-partisan truth that you have to be devoted to. Um, most historians were not young, that is pre-British historians were not young by the reckoning of their own ages. Thus, as Peter Hardy pointed out in his Historians of Medieval India, uh, Zia al-Dil Barani, arguably the most important historian of the Sultanate period, was at least 74 lunar years old when he completed his Taruki Firuz Shahi in 1357. There is some disagreement between Hardy and Nizami as to whether or not Barani used eyewitness accounts, but there is broad agreement that he wrote both this book and Fatwa-i Jahandari out of concern for his own rise and fall. So most histories written in pre-colonial India were not disinterested histories, and they were written for very particular reasons. Out of his own rise and fall during his last years of exile from court and as a means of educating the Sultan of Delhi with a view to his rehabilitation. The 17th century Hindu historian Ishwada Snagar's Futuathi Jahang Alamgiri, dealing with the period 1657 to 1700, was written when the author was 47 years old. And it was written as an act of secular piety. I mean, he says, the author says, after going through it, the educated may derive intellectual benefits, the illiterate knowledge, the brave inspiration, and the cowards may no longer, um, cowards may long to undertake valorous deeds. Written histories were often used to secure particular favors. Sarkar himself translated, among other things, three 18th century Persian histories of Bengal Nawabs. Of these, Azad al Husaini's, now Bahar i Murshid Guli Khan, was clearly used by the author as part of an application for a literary pension, while Yusuf Ali's Ahwabal i Mahabad Chang was written as a distraction. And it's quite interesting when, when uh, Yusuf Ali describes why he writes history. He says he's writing his history to compose his mind, because he was going through a difficult time brought about, he says, by illness, unemployment, father's death, and the danger of imprisonment and confiscation of property. And history was a nice thing to contemplate when you are faced with those sorts of troubles. In fact, it was the very different cultural location of history that allowed European administrators and soldiers to collect historical manuscripts in India in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Histories were often written and given as gifts to secure favors with officials. Think of the famous Eliot and Dowson nine-volume collection of Muslim histories. Eliot, who was the foreign secretary of Lord Dalhousie, was interested in the history of old Indian families. Gifts of Persian manuscripts, Jim, maybe there are some thoughts here that might be useful. So because he was the, uh, he was the foreign secretary he was the, of Lord Dalhousie, gifts of Persian families 
Persian manuscripts to him, presenting him with very rare or hitherto unknown historical manuscripts <coughs> smoothed the passage to his darbar. It could even make it possible to save a small kingdom or increase the pension of a Nawab. Thus, Sarkar writes, the hapless descendants of the imperial old courtly families gave Eliot gifts of highly valuable and beautifully written Persian manuscripts preserved in the imperial palace of Delhi. Among them were some of which there were no other copies in this world. Earlier in the 18th century, when the English, between 1765 and 1775, when the English became the main power in northeast India, Europeans began to acquire illustrated Persian manuscripts in Lucknow and elsewhere through the force of money and power. Again, Sarkar has a very interesting description of this in a Bengali essay where he says, and I'm quoting Sarkar, he says, supplicants who knew Persian wrote up histories in that language or collected what they had at home to give as gifts to Europeans in order to please the Europeans and thus obtain their passage to employment. Especially the stories to do with the occupation of Delhi by Ghulam Qadir towards the end of 1788, the extraction of Shah Alam's eyes, looting of the royal family, and the insults suffered by them created great excitement and curiosity among Europeans inside and outside India. Then the very next year saw the beginning of the French Revolution. There was also the royal family. There also the royal family was humiliated and harassed, and the nobility killed or incarcerated and tortured. For this reason, says Sarkar, many of the English in India asked their munshis to write the histories of the last phase of the Mughal emperors. And it's interesting that he includes Ghulam Hussein Tabatabai's Siarul Mutakharin in his list of such European-induced Persian histories. It could, of course, be wrong to say that these Persian historians had no concern with historical truth, because then in that case, they would not be historians in any sense. But being truthful about the past was not the main reason why they wrote history. That's my point. That the, the point of writing history was not to pursue the truth. They wrote to advance different causes in their lives, from very narrow selfish ones to serving larger religious or other interests. What was new then about the idea of historical research, as Sarkar promoted it, was its absolutely non-instrumental, disinterested character, a kind of a truth-for-truth-sake attitude. The joy of research partook of this pure, disinterested character of truth being sought, as expressed, for instance, in a letter written in 1936, in which Sarkar describes how reading Sardesai's translation of Bussi's March on Pune led him to a restudy of the Maratha accounts of it, and he wrote, I found the Purandar Daftar of such absorbing interest that I stole a day and a half from work on my third volume of the Fall of the Mughal Empire and translated the whole of the account of this expedition given in the Daftar and identified all the places. That is, he pulled out his maps and corrected village names and identified all the places. And then he writes, there is an unspeakable joy when one succeeds in tracing every minute, every minute movement of a campaign on large maps like the ones I possess. I had the same thing done with regard to the Palkhead campaign three years ago. And again, you can see how the coming of a new discipline actually produces new kinds of emotions, uh, including the emotion of friendship. The reason why these two become, people became friends was because they used very complementary historical sources, you know, Persian and Marathi. And I, again, I can't imagine those kind of friendships being formed in the pre-British period, that is, before the idea of this discipline, looking at somebody in the round, and therefore finding a truth that was non-partisan, uh, came to be accepted. <coughs> so Sarkar's presidential speech to a literary conference in 1915 articulated this idea of truth in a very, in, in its really idealistic form, where he said, the best method of researching history is the scientific method, which is a clear indication of 
the German influence. And he would often actually mention the Germans, and Rankau is one person that he would actually mention. And this way, he said, nationalist pride should not lead Indians to dismiss, sim dismiss this scientific method simply because modern Europeans had invented it. By pointing to nationalist pride as an obstacle to research, Sarkar was obviously also making the point that the question of methods in scientific history could not be separated from the cultivation of a certain kind of attitude on the part of the historian. That is, which is really, you know, the big difference is like today, we teach our students to kind of wear their biases on their sleeve. Or bias operates like fine print, or it operates like caveat emptor. You know, you, you tell the reader in the first, uh, in your preface that you're a feminist, you're a Marxist, and the reader has to accept it. Whereas for these people, bias was something you actually had to fight against uh, with the idea that you could overcome it, or it would, you should try to overcome it. And therefore, he goes on to say, we should not, we will not worry about whether or not the truth we seek is pleasant or unpleasant, if it accords with or differs from received public opinion, whether it pleases or hurts, our sense of patriotism will not be our concern. If telling the truth invites taunts and complaints from our friends or societies, we will put up with that. For it is the vow of the historian to seek, understand, accept the truth. We will have to uproot the idea from our minds that treating the ancient stories of India, say the Ramayana or the Mahabharata, as fiction will stain the glorious image of India. We have to resolve that we will believe nothing without proof. It was like a manifesto, as you can see it. Believe nothing, to believe nothing without proof was Sarkar's battle cry against histories that were produced in India in the first part of the 19th century when European scholars were more accommodative of native knowledge. So I, I guess the point I'm making, larger point, is that this, de this declaration that we will believe nothing without proof comes really belongs to the second part of the 19th century when both European knowledge and the Indian reception of European knowledge happens at the cost of, happens alongside a certain kind of denigration of native knowledge. <coughs> so if you look at production of history before the mid-19th century, whether you think of James Todd, um, whether you think of John Malcolm writing about Ahallabai in Indore, um, whether you think of uh, Grant Duff writing the history of the Marathas in 1826, you will find, you go through their footnotes and you will find there's a give and take between Indian existing genres about telling stories about the past. So for instance, Malcolm, who was brought up on Hume's history of England and completely a product of the Scottish Enlightenment and therefore always takes pain to sort of suggest why his propositions are true, um, actually has to then say, Ahullabai is not documented, so I have to tell the stories that I have received them. Or a very interesting case is James Todd. I mean, Todd, Todd as you know, Todd used Rajasthanic bardic material to write Annals and Antiquities of Rajasthan. And then Todd himself is used by Shamal Das Kaviraj, who write the four-volume, you know, the Veer Vinod, the famous history of Rajasthan. So there's a kind of give and take going on in the early part of the 19th century between European forms of history telling and Indian forms of history telling, and what changes with this scientific history, with the coming of, in the, in the second half of the 19th century, is, um, is precisely that there's a denigration of existing knowledge from, and there's a moving away from this kind of, um, uh, uh, this kind of uh, give and take. And for that reason, um, when Sarkar, for instance, writes about K.P. Jaiswal, the nationalist historian, he writes very clearly, he says, the writings of K.P. Jaiswal, this is 1940, though containing a few original documents, 
a 99% pure nationalist brag and moonshine, and you would be well advised to keep clear of his theories. But, <coughs> and I don't need to, I don't want to go into details there, which we can discuss them later. What's most interesting, uh, and maybe I'll have a chance to uh, uh, touch on this later, is that if you, if you look at the 20th century, what happens around Sarkar all around is nationalist history writing of different kinds of nationalism, casteist histories, eventually in the 20th century, Hindu histories, Muslim histories, and his very close friend, Sardesai, with whom he was collaborating, himself was clearly writing histories about Maratha pride. You know, and, and, and so in their correspondence, there's a lot of times when Sarkar actually denounces sources that Sardesai would be wanting to use. Uh, in his, and there's a, there's a particular correspondence where Sardesai gets very upset and says, maybe I'm not writing history, I'm writing a kaifiyat, an apologia on behalf of the Maratha races, because we have been so misunderstood. So, in that sense, Sarkar was a, also a lonesome figure, you know, fighting this battle. Sardesai was mostly with him, but, uh, but what's interesting is, of course, um, uh, the, the, the denigration that I, I'm talking about happens more in the insistence of uh, the people who actually accept the idea of scientific history than what is actually happening on the ground in terms of people who are coming up and claiming to write histories otherwise. So, so a lot of Sarkar's battles are actually with his contemporaries. So, um, and there as he, for instance, with, with dealing with this, just to give one example, um, there's, a, there's a Shiva Digvijaya. Sarkar had written to Shiva Dig, about Shiva Digvijaya, a source on Shivaji. Uh, in, as early as 1917, he wrote a letter to Sardesai saying, I'm now convinced that Shiva Digvijaya is a modern forgery, probably based upon some old material. But Sardesai was wanting to use this book in 1940 and came back to Sarkar and he said, you know, you've been too harsh on this book. I've gone through it. Um, I've gone through it carefully and certain letters are original and they can be used. And Sarkar's reply says, it would be a fatal mistake for you to depend on any point on Shiva Digvijay. It's opposed to the principles of historical evidence. Borrow Reverend H. B. George's historical evidence, 1909, and read through it. The legal principle, and the, it's very interesting how the legal principle, the FIR, is always there, the juridical principle. The legal principle is False in one, false in all. You know, if a witness has given one false statement, then you can't, just can't rely on it. False in one, false in all, and such witnesses are totally to be rejected. This moral, idealist, and juridical position on historical research and objectivity thus therefore entailed a struggle with Sarkar's own present, with the discipline of history, as it was actually finding a home among Indian universities in the 1920s and 30s and later. And what was happening very quickly, uh, if you look at the field in the, in the 1910s, I mean, there is, as the tradition of the ICS history writing, I mean, like the Beveridges, the Irvines, Beveridge Irvine would have been, in a way, Sarkar's mentor, particularly Irvine. As that tradition is winding down, you have other kinds of Europeans, for instance, Rashbrook Williams, who comes to Allahabad University as the head of the history department to build up that history department. Or, um, or Rawlinson, who is the head of Elphinstone College and writes history. Um, as, as these historians, these historians, these European historians get replaced in the 20s by young Indian historians who have been to England, done their PhDs, uh, SOAS is established in 1917. 
and, and, and there's a stream gradually of Indian historians who go there in the 20s, 30s. They come back and occupy these positions. And one person I'll uh, need to mention is Shafat Amit Khan. Shafat Amit Khan did a, PhD, a Welsh PhD on East India Company, came back and replaced Rashbuk Williams as the head of the Allahabad University. And he began to, he began to publish the Journal of Indian History, you know, which is now a much neglected journal that comes out of Madras. But it was shifted to Madras in its fourth year as it sort of ran out of finances. Uh, but uh, Shafat Ahmed Khan started uh, this journal. Muhammad Habib comes back to Aligarh at about 1928 or something. And of course, this Shafat Ahmed Khan, Surendranath Sen from Calcutta, uh, D.V. Poddar from Pune, they become the younger historians who are trying to set up the Indian History Congress, which eventually happens in 1935 and is the first professional association. And a lot of Sarkar's battles are actually with these historians in terms, as I said, of the idealist understanding of historical truth. And his disagreement with them is that they are not idealist enough and therefore not qualified to be historians. So the first professional, his meeting of the Indian historians, called at first the All India Modern History Congress, and then, then renamed the Indian History Congress, which is still the name by which it is known, took place in Pune in 1935 and was the handiwork of three scholars who became the political institutional leaders of Indian historians in the 1930s and later. later. Dattavaman Poddar from Pune, Surendranath Sen from the University of Calcutta, and Sir Shafat Ahmed Khan, Department of History, University of Allahabad. Shafat Ahmed Khan later actually became, um, uh, before independence, became Indian High Commissioner in South Africa and was, I think, killed during the riots, of the partition riots of 46. Um, Sarkar did not consider any one of them true researchers. Uh, Sardesai also explained the same sentiment in a letter of 1937. He says, as usual, the Mandal people, Poddar was the leader of the Mandal in Pune, have been assiduous in their attacks upon you and me. I think a time has come when you speak out to the whole Indian world how these people lack the real historical spirit and scholarship. So the emphasis is always on the genuine researcher, real historical spirit and scholarship. But the more idealistic figure of the true researcher often combined with a general condemnation of the, their character in, in the private letters. The private letters, they're all, you know, uh, it just shows how much the figure of the true researcher was laden with a moral significance. One accusation privately leveled at the younger historians um, who started the Indian History Congress was that they were all talk and little work. They didn't do enough research. Second accusation was they didn't learn the language as well. So this I, you know, with uh, uh, Suren Sen, who worked on Maratha history, Sarkar was always writing off to the great uh, historian from Goa, uh, Pisurlenkar, uh, who, was, who, was, who had wonderful control of Portuguese sources. And Sardisai was always writing off to him. Letter, uh, Sarkar was writing off to Pisurlenkar asking, now, do you think sense Portuguese is good? Um, or he would sometimes write, I, I'm just, it's such a pity that you don't write in English. There's somebody else, you know, uh, another scholar I know who doesn't know enough Portuguese, but is taking all the credit basing himself on your research. So this idea that, that Suren Sen was an unscrupulous person, didn't do enough languages. Um, and uh, the Indian History Congress is always a vulgar tamasha. And to the end of his life, Sarkar never went to the Indian History Congress. I never, I always avoid the Indian History Congress and shall do so even when I'm here during its sitting. It is a vulgar tamasha started by a drunkard. Um, and I'll come back to the drunkard bit. Uh, uh, <coughs> The, there's, um, I can't find it here in, in going over these notes, but there's a particular letter that he writes to Pisulenkar, 
which I think is about Shafat Ahmed Khan, where he says, you mentioned this professor, but this professor almost damaged my dinner suit the other day. There were some conference together, and they were going back in the same car, and Shafat Ahmed Khan was drunk, and he started to sing. And, and Sarkar's letter said, you know, this man started crooning this drunkard, and there was every fear of my dinner suit being spoiled, <laughs> which again was proof that he was not a genuine researcher. <laughs> so, but I should clarify once again that I'm not interested in understanding the psychology or motivation behind Sarkar's dislike, you know, because you can always find motivation. Uh, and there are interesting stories. You know. I'm interested rather in the language of the dislike. For that language was derived from, as I said, an ideal, romantic, and moral figure of the passionate yet disinterested and diligent researcher. I'm interested, shall we say, in the social rather than the purely personal meaning that the hostility towards the likes of Khan or Sen or Puddar would have had for a Sarkar. For him, the Indian History Congress was not serious research business. Oftentimes, Sarkar would express his uh, intellectual disrespect for conferences and symposia as a form for dissemination of research. Once he wrote to, and nor did he have much faith in the Indian institution faculty. He wrote to Sardisai, uh, gets this letter saying, I do not share your optimism about an impetus being given to the exploration of regional histories in Bombay University. The failure of Maharashtra University scheme is quite irrelevant to the issue. Whence will come the professors who will honestly and industrially take up this work of research? They're a lazy lot, as your university authorities are utterly ignorant of needs of scholarship and indifferent to learning. And in 1949, when he was approached by nationalist historians, to be the editor-in-chief for a volume of nationalist histories, he writes to Sardisai saying, I know that a debating club, especially one composed of educated Indians, cannot bring any work to completion. In case Allahabad will agree to have me, they must endow me with full powers, exactly as Cambridge University did to Sir Wolseley Haig for the Cambridge History of India volume. If I have to correct and rewrite the rubbish which our Indian professors of history write, as I found to my bitter experience when editing the second volume of Dhaka University History of Bengal, I must be paid an extra fee for this dhobi work. <laughs> Sometimes, Sarkar's idealistic moral criticism of what he saw as the Indian scholar's habitual tendency towards laziness went to ridiculous extremes. He would allow young scholars to use his personal library only if he was convinced that they were genuine researchers. When Suraj Narayan Rao came from the Jin state, to work in his library in Calcutta in mid-December 1948 and worked all day, every day in the library, Sarkar would see him only at 4 p.m. with a cup of tea and not talk, silently sip a cup himself and leave after asking Rao to give a list of the material he needed the next day. But that was not what I had in mind as an example, as an example of you know, being ridiculously extreme. The test that this man, young researcher, had to pass, Rao had to pass, is indicated in the following sentence of his own reminiscence of Sajjadunath Sarkar. He says, you know, he's spending there every day, remember this, and he says, it was perhaps on the third day that one of his grandsons came to me and politely pointed out to me the bathroom for use, even when I needed it. So only because he had passed the test of being a genuine researcher, he was told where the bathroom was. <laughs> so where was the ideal republic of letters that Sarkar would consider himself a member of? And this is where it's interesting. Um, research was seen as German, but I think he was deeply influenced by the tradition of Gibbon to Macaulay, that writing was literary work, but research was, had to be systematic and Germanic. And, uh, and he even viewed his own, you know, the other interesting thing about Germany, German research professor, um, 
is of course that they had their own research libraries. They collected documents. Rairanka, for instance, would buy documents in the Venetian marketplace. Sarkar would actually <coughs> collect documents. He would make Raghuram, uh, Raghuram Singh, his student, collect documents. And he was extremely proud that he was the only professor with a research library. He says, my kind of library with five, 6,000 documents, that's what you need for genuine research. And, and praise for German thoroughness. So fundamentally for him, the Republic of Letters that he thought he belonged to was somewhere in Europe. And there's one long letter where when, you know, after Sardesai had edited the Pune uh, residency papers and had been criticized by the Pune people about the work, what he had done, Sarkar writes a letter comforting him where he says, look, um, it's a very, it's a, I'll just read a little bit. He says, my dear Nana, he's calling Nana, in Europe, your work as the editor of the Peshwa Daftar's records would have been promptly recognized by your own university and every university where Maratha history is taught by conferring on you an honorary degree of delete. In England, Mr. Loeb, a mere rich man, probably innocent of the classics, would create a doctor by the Cambridge University because he financed the issue of a new edition of Greek and Latin classics. True scholars are there honored even more surely and quickly. Sakar had never been to Europe, by the way. Um, but here, people are jealous of you, etc., etc. And um, and this shadow of so I want to conclude by going back to this question of uh, Europe and and this connection between the ideality of this category called research, uh, which you distinguish from the uh, the, the researchers carried out by Shafat Ahmed Khan from Indian universities who are getting into the business of you know getting on getting, taking PhD students giving degrees who are much closer to what we think of as research. So if you could make a distinction, in particularly in terms of history, between Sarkar's idea of truth, that a historian looks for truth, and our more contemporary notion that the historian does not look for truth, the historian looks for objectivity. In other words, the historian is procedurally objective, but is not trying to be truthful, whereas Sarkar's idea that the historian has to be truthful in himself in order to find the historical truth. Um, I think this, this ideality of the figure of the researcher has something to do with a certain kind of doubleness of the figure of Europe in, in his imagination. And that's, I want to speak about the doubleness of Europe and then conclude and open up the discussion. It is usually said about Sarkar by, I mean, the hearsay about Sarkar, the word, the bazaar story about Sarkar or the uh, word out that he was a loyalist of the empire. Um, in fact, when Sarkar was rejected by historians eventually in the late 50s, 60s, um, apart from other charges, it was always said that he was, uh, he was basically, he was knighted by the British in 1929, and he was a pro-imperial historian. And therefore, you know, you can't sort of count him in the um, story of nationalism and his struggle with the colonialism and the historiography of that. There's some truth to that. I think there, there are bits in these letters too where I can definitely say that there is a kind of loyalty to the British Empire. But loyalty to the empire for thoughtful Indians was always itself a double thing. The empire or Europe or these, these idealistic names, you know, uh, these names also stood in for, I would argue, for an alternative vision of the nation itself. And in that sense, I want to argue that there were two kinds of nationalisms at play. One kind of nationalism is the nationalism we think of of the 20th century, where you pit the nation against the empire. 
So if you think of nation, the nation is incompatible with empire. A young Hungarian historian, Monica Barr, has recently just come out with a very interesting book looking at 19th century historians from six countries, Lithuania, Hungary, uh, Poland, Germany, um, and somewhere else. Uh, but one of the interesting points she makes looking at 19th century Europe was there were many nationalist historians in 19th century Europe who were pleading, who were writing histories not to found sovereign, sovereign nation states, but to find a place for their nation within an empire, within the Habsburg Empire, for instance. And I want to argue that there was, for Sarkar, for Gandhi before the First World War, for, you know, when Gandhi said, I'm a loyal subject of the British Empire, that there was a kind of nationalism which did not pit the nation against the empire, as did other kinds of nationalism. And I think Sarkar's loyalty, the richness of that loyalty is misunderstood if it's simply seen as somebody wanting to flatter the British. And um, so let, just let me read out. I want to suggest that the Europe here is also a substitute for a nation that never was and never came to be. The nationalism that Jadunath Sarkar sought and desired became a receding goal after the Great War, after the First War. On the night of 15th May 1950, as he completed his tome on the fall of the Mughals, Sarkar penned a letter to Sardesai describing his feelings about the end of the great empire that had, provoked, that had provided him with his life's work. And I'm quoting, On this occasion of your 86th birthday, I have given the finishing touches to the last chapter of my fall of the Mughal empire and sent it to the press. I can say I have written it not with ink, but with my heart's blood. In saying so, I am not thinking of personal sorrows and anxieties, because he had lost a lot of family in these years, which have clouded the evening of my day, nor of the minute study and exhausting labor that had to be devoted to the subject in this terrible summer heat, but of the subject matter of the last chapters, the imbecility and the vices of our rulers, the cowardice of their generals, and the selfish treachery of their ministers. It is a tale which makes every true son of India hang his head in shame. But at last, my task is done, and I'm free again. Indeed, there were other, some, there were some other cryptic and paradoxical sentences in that last chapter of the fourth volume of The Fall, published in 1950, within two years of independence. The very last paragraph of the book, for instance, says, modern India has become an independent, fully sovereign state. That political evolution had been made possible only by British imperialism. That is why the noblest sons of India, and he names a few, have recognized the divine dispensation in the fall of the Mughal Empire, looked at from before and behind. What could have Sarkar meant by divine dispensation? The clue, I think, is in a sentence that he wrote in the early 1920s while working on his multi-volume History of Aurangzeb, where Sarkar wrote, history, when rightly read, and this is the final paragraph of the fifth and final volume, the History of Aurangzeb, 1924, he said, history when rightly read is a justification of providence, the revelation of a great purpose fulfilled in times. You could not have a more Rankian sentence. Because in, as you know, in, the, in Rankian philosophy of history, providence was the ground of diversity. In other words, you did not, one could never explain why nations were different. Nations were different because God had destined them to be different. And that, of course, chimed in quite beautifully with a romantic civilizational idea of India, that India had its own civilizational destiny. The echoes here of Rankin ideas are unmistakable, but in Sarkar, they are clearly in play with the civilizational view of India, the divine dispensation, which is Tagore's 
the Lord of India's destiny in the national anthem. The divine dispensation was also to do with India's capacity to fulfill her civilizational promises. The few pages before, he remarks on British imperialism enabling India's evolution into a modern sovereign nation state. Sarkar speaks of, the in, of, of India in the following terms. India was not called upon to plume herself in the borrowed feathers of European civilization. She had only to assimilate modern thought and modern arts into her inner life without any loss of what she had long possessed. And that's why there's a very interesting translation going on in his, between his Bengali and English writing where he translates a word like disinterestedness into a Sanskrit word like chitta shuddhi, which is a word, you know, a cleansing of your consciousness, which is a word that occurs in the Gita, the Upanishads, in Shankaracharya's Vivek Chudamani, and some other texts. So there's a kind of a translation of these things going on. But if India was not to plume herself in the borrowed feathers of European civilization, surely idealizing a Europe of the mind as the home of scholarship was not an exercise in blind imitation, nor could it have been just based on an empirical knowledge of Europe. This Europe, that is an idealized Europe, could only be the name of a nation to come, just as in Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, an idealized Europe is what the colonized has to, has to reinvent. And this goes on in the final pages of uh, Aurangzeb. So just to end then, let me just say this, that I think there is a politics that sustains this older idea of research and truth as distinct from objectivity. And, and I'll just schematically uh, do a binary to just highlight what the two kinds of politics are that I'm talking about. You know, if you read Gibbon's Decline of the Roman Empire, one of the interesting things about Gibbon as, an, as a historian was that Gibbon was influenced by even the moods of some of the Roman historians. Like the influence of Tacitus on Gibbon is something commentators write about. And in that sense, Gibbon, in a very interesting way, Gibbon actually participates in the historiography that that he, ba he bases his history on. And in that sense, he sees himself in line of continuity with somebody like Tacitus. And Sarkar, interestingly, does not see himself in a line of continuity with pre-British historians. And, and the reason for this, it, it seems to me, is this. That it is people like, you know, if you look at Tacitus and his discussion of the crisis of Rome, um, it is Tacitus and the, these Roman historians who would, for instance, develop the idea of virtue that then Machiavelli would talk about. And that idea of virtue and statesmanship will come down to Gibbon and come down to certain enlightenment ideas about statesmanship, about Carlyle's idea of heroism, all of those constellations. Sarkar is obviously influenced, and this classicism was part of the ideology of the empire. The British empire often saw itself as in a line with these older empires, older sort of classical empires. And I think this classicism is a fundamental part of Sarkar's historiography, which is why he writes about Aurangzeb, he writes about Shivaji, to actually see if these people had the virtues needed in a statesman, in a ruler. I mean, it's interesting, the Shivaji book actually measures Shivaji, his achievements after his coronation against the Napoleonic codes. You know, if Shivaji, if, if you could see that Shivaji's measures were actually measuring up to the Napoleonic codes, then Shivaji was clearly a virtuous statesman. And I think this, I, this conception of politics being made up of virtuous individuals and therefore history writing itself needing a kind of cultivation of virtue, you know, which is then also distilled into the Victorian idea of character which plays through his, his writings. 
fundamentally was part of the conception of the political in India until the First World War. So if you read Tilak, if you read Aurobindo, if you read these early people theorizing the political, there's a lot of discussion of virtue, which of course they root through the Gita and these other Indian texts. I mean, in a recent essay that Rochuna and I published, uh, we tried to argue that the Gandhi was the first politician who himself remained virtuous, but disconnected politics from the pursuit of virtue. In other words, Gandhi was the first politician to acknowledge that alongside him there would be there would be people like Jinnah and Ambedkar who wouldn't necessarily be <coughs> cultivating virtue in the way that Gandhi might be. And I think a similar shift underlies kind of um, the shift in historiography. The move from truth to objectivity is a move fundamentally from a politics of virtue, politics constructed as, as being virtuousness, as cultivation of virtue, to a politics of interest or pursuit of interest in which you, you fundamentally agreed that there could not be any truth, and all you could agree on is a procedural uh, method which guaranteed certain kind of objectivity. I just wanted to show this, this particular, because you know, this picture is really interesting because that's not a normal human spine. <laughs> and that erectness of the spine, and he obviously got himself photographed from the side to emphasize that he could sit erect. And, you know, this Victorianism was part of my childhood. Whenever I slouched at my, at, at my study, my mother or father would come and pull me up and say, sit with an erect spine, otherwise you can't concentrate. Um, but that's all, that's the story about virtue. Uh, virtue getting distilled into character, then getting distilled into bodily practices and mental practices, and completely tied to this conception of truth and this truthfulness of the figure of the researcher. So, so I want to say that, that um, we are not the researchers of Sarkar's dreams, but there were other ideas about being a researcher before um, we came into the world. Okay. Thank you very much.